Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to Matthew's Gospel found in chapter 5 as we continue along in our text in verses 27 through 32. Let me just say this as you find your place and as we begin. um, I have instructed my wife uh, following this message to have the car running and ready so we can flee out of here. Uh, depending on how this goes in just a few moments. There are uh, several passages that exist that oftentimes Christians find themselves, pardon me, on opposite ends of the spectrum. And we can become very passionate about those forms of interpretation and understanding of those things. And so what I'm simply here to do today is to lay out what I best perceive the Lord God has spoken in his word. When it comes to the issue in particular of divorce, Now, before we even begin, let me just say this to you. Odds are, statistically speaking, over 50% of you that are here today have experienced and or gone through divorce. Every single one of you that have gone through that, there was a variety of circumstances that led to that moment. I don't believe that any one of you here today that went through that sought out from the very beginning to actually have and to go through with a divorce. But we live in a fallen world and sin corrupts and it changes circumstances and relationships and families. Our goal as believers is that we would simply be a people that are walking in obedience to God. But what I want to say to you this morning is this, is that if you are here today and you have experienced divorce, the stance that I believe that God would take is not one that is here today to condemn any one of you that is here. For the scripture says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And I think sometimes pastors, rather unpastorally, as they talk about these things in prescriptive ways, fail to make that point. And so what I'm here to do today is not to chastise or condemn anyone that has gone through a divorce, but rather to be prescriptive in the sense of that those of you that are not yet married or have not experienced marriage, I want to tell you this is what God's design is and this is what God's best is for his people. And I want us to rest in that posture. That what we're doing here today is we're doing a little bit of premarital counseling for those that haven't yet gotten married or perhaps maybe those that are and you find yourself struggling this side of eternity with your spouse. And so here we have Jesus makes the second illustration in his point prior to verse 17 where he talks about I have come not to abolish the law, not to do away with it, but rather I have come to fulfill it. And he illustrates this point in two very distinct ways. Number one, we saw last week how he talked about the idea that if you hate someone in your heart, you have committed and violated the commandment of murdering your brother or your sister. And Jesus not only lower, he doesn't lower the standard, but rather he raises the standard, if you will, for his people, saying this, that the law points to the fact that you need to be reminded that you need a savior in your life because you are incapable of fulfilling God's perfect law. We need someone to redeem us. And Jesus goes on to illustrate the second point after talking about murder, but connecting back to the idea of Christ coming not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we pick up on this second point in verse 27, where the word of God says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, you tear it out and you throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that of your whole body to go to hell. Very harsh and direct words from a very loving Savior. Who in this very moment, and as he speaks these words to the people, as they gather to hear him, what he does in this moment is he begins to call his people not to a lower standard of living, but rather to a higher standard of living. He begins to challenge the the preconceived notion that to have favor with God, it was all about how I acted and how I lived and what my physical posture was. And what Jesus does in this moment is he reminds us, as the law was always intended to do, that what God is the most concerned about with his people and his brothers and sisters is not so much the performance that exists within our behavior, but rather the attitude and the condition that our heart finds itself in today. That he cares about that. And he longs to see his people not just walking in obedience and being faithful to him, but a people whose hearts are bent towards him and long to see his justice and his goodness and his kindness fulfilled as on this earth, just as it is in heaven. He calls us to a higher standard. And so he reminds the people, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Taking it face value, it means exactly what it says it means. You don't lay with someone else that is not your spouse, that you were not married to and and you were not with in the eyes of the Lord. But anyone who goes so far as not just to lay, but to looks with intent, you have already violated the law. And you have violated the commandment of, of adultery. Now in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 20.10, the consequence of adultery was death. It wasn't a scarlet letter. It wasn't being ostracized in the community. It wasn't being looked down upon with with shame and condemnation. The consequence in Leviticus 20.10 was death. If you were found out and proven to be an adulterer, your consequence was of the most severe. And here in this moment, Jesus tells his people that the consequence for for not just adultery, but the consequence for looking at other individuals with lustful attitudes and hearts, that it is the very same thing that would have been executed in Leviticus 20.10, the consequence is death. But notice what he says in verse 29. He gives us some instruction on what we are to do if we find ourselves entangled and, and caught up in these things. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, he says, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand, it causes you to sin, therefore cut it off and and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members than your whole body go into hell. Now, when I was in high school, I was raised in a family and with a group of people out in East Texas that our understanding was is that if you somehow were uh, caught up in turning the other cheek or, or the extreme end of you were caught up in, you would uh, read these as very literal and decisive acts in the life of the believer. And so therefore, you, you struggle with the idea, well, if my right hand is, is causing me to sin or my right eye, do I, do, I, do I pluck it out? Is that really what he's saying for, for God's people today? If that was the case, probably none of us would have any hands or, or any eyes, most of all your pastor today. 
We'd walk around blind and not able to see and perhaps not able to function. But I think what Jesus is doing in this moment is he is reminding his people that when it comes to sin, when it comes to disobedience, when, when he says your right eye causing you to sin or your right hand causing you to sin, what he is saying is that when we understand that what we are doing has entangled us with sin, then we are to act decisively and to run quickly away from the thing that has entangled us, that has caught us up in it. We are to flee from it. We flee from that sin as we run to our Savior. What Jesus is saying in verses 27 and 30 is he is simply reminding them that the idea of adultery and the physical act of adultery, and as he illustrates this with the posture of a lustful attitude towards someone that's not our spouse, that adultery is a failure to believe God at its core. And lust, is a failure to believe God at its core, to obey him and to pursue his goodness and his holiness. We are to flee as quickly and to act decisively in those moments. In the summertime at the Erickson household, one of our daily rituals is we like to go swimming. And all the family will go in and we'll swim for 15 or 20 minutes and then just, we don't swim long, but we'll swim and then we'll, it's time to get out and go in and get cleaned up. But Lucy, my, my little three-year-old daughter, she's a water bug. She loves to swim. She also loves to disobey her mom and dad at times. And when the horn goes off and it's time to come into the house, you can watch Lucy without fail almost every time she leaves the shallow end and she very quietly and very purposefully begins to, to drift away and to flee all the way to the deep end of the pool, away from everyone else that is exiting. By this point, dad has had it, mom's had it. We're wrangling Duke and our older ones. Haley's wrangling me and, and we look, where is Lucy? And very undecisively, there she is on the other side, unwilling to follow and to flee, unwilling to obey in that moment. And the problem is she is highly manipulative for a three-year-old, but she's so beautiful and so cute that we allow the manipulation to happen from time to time. Jesus is saying the opposite in this moment. When we become entangled, when we see and, and we are there, that we are to act decisively and quickly and we are to flee that very thing. A gentleman by the name of David Powson, who's a Christian counselor that I highly respect, he talks about and frames the idea of running and fleeing, not just from lustful behaviors, but from sin in general. And he characterizes the, the, the emotive state oftentimes of believers. And, and one of the things that's helpful in Paulson's rendering or his paradigm of, of this mentality that ultimately can lead us, that it, yes, it is at its very core a failure to believe God's word, yet there are moments in our emotional state that we tend to drift and gravitate towards those things more readily. And what Paulson does that I think is helpful for us this morning is he identifies these triggers. Number one, just simply when we're bored, we are more prone to sin. You know that high school students get in trouble more often, not in when school is going on, but rather in the summertime. Why? Because they don't have anything to do. 
Until they get entangled and, and they get bored. And what this says to us is that sin becomes my friend in that moment. It's the thing that I value. He goes on to say that when we are feeling in places of, of loneliness, that sin becomes our friend where I'm lonely in my relationships or lonely before the Lord or I feel neglected or overlooked, then, then, I, then I entangle myself in that sin and it becomes my friend when we are in postures and rhythms of being stressed. When there's all these things that are sort of pointing down onto us and with us, then, then it is sin. It is the thing that comforts us if we are not aware. Friend, what are you being comforted by this morning when we are frustrated? Sin becomes the thing that gives us peace in that moment. And we long for it in all the wrong places. When we are tired, sin becomes our source of life. When we are hurt, sin becomes our place of refuge and rest. When we are betrayed, sin becomes our revenge. Jesus goes on in verse 31. And he said, it was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, there are a couple things that we must get right theologically to understand this, and, and to understand it in all of Scripture, and understanding that we, we begin with the verse that many of us are familiar with growing up in the church, Malachi 2.16, God, the Lord God, he hates divorce. He does. He doesn't like it, doesn't want it, doesn't will it. He hates it. But with that understanding, we also understand that in Genesis 2, 24, uh, the Bible says that, that you are to leave and cleave and you hold fast to your spouse. And, and what that means is, is that marriage is about covenant. It's about covenant. It's about a commitment, a lifelong Commitment. If you were to sit in my office and we were to do premarital counseling or marital counseling for that matter, this is one of the things that we would harp on for two or three sessions at the very least, is making sure that we understand what God means when he says we have entered into a marriage covenant to, to leave and to cleave to one another and to make this vow of, of faithfulness to one another, regardless of our feelings and, and our affections, that we've committed to one another, a lifelong commitment, a covenantal commitment. A covenant is not about how you feel in the present, but what you promised for the future. Before your church family and before your friends, you come before and you've made a, a promise to, to God and you've made a promise before those that are there as, as witnesses, seeing and, and testifying that I was there and I, I heard the vow. And I heard the words, and this was your promise. Marriage is about covenant, but marriage, in marriage, we also find companionship. It is true that one of God's primary purposes for our marriage is to refine us and to make us holy. But along with that holiness, one of the things that I think we often forget in our pretentious states, in our most holier-than-thou states, that I find myself telling couples over and over and over again that it is okay to have fun and it is okay to be happy in your marriage. It's okay to cut up and to 
and to date and to have a good time and to work on your marriage and invest in your marriage in that way. Yes, we seek first the kingdom of God and, and all of these other things will be added unto us and, and that is our first and, and foremost priority. But in marriage, we find companionship because in Genesis 2.18, God says it is not good to be alone. And what struck me about that this week as I read Genesis 2.18, and, and I've known this before, but it was a great reminder to this. When, when God declares that statement that it is not good to be alone, this happens prior to the fall in Genesis 3. And so Adam is, is working and he's naming the animals and he's in perfect fellowship. He's had unhindered quiet times before the Lord. There is no sin in his life. And here it is in this moment. And what this tells us is that God has made us to be in relationship with him and to be in relationship with others. It is not good to be alone. In marriage, we find companionship. But most importantly, in the context of marriage and understanding Jesus' words in this text, the pattern and the purpose for our marriages is and always has been the gospel of Jesus. An attitude and a, and a posture of, of service and kindness an attitude and a, and a rhythm of selflessness towards one another as displayed in the gospel of Jesus. The gospel, the more we understand the gospel and the behavior and the heart behind the gospel, the more we begin to understand our marriages and how our marriages ultimately reflect to that goodness that we see in God's word. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite Authors, he compares in one of his works the idea of marriage to a ray of, of sunshine. And what Lewis meant by that is, is oftentimes things can get in the way and they can obscure the light that comes down before the sun. Yet there are times in which that sun ray and, and, and that ray of light is magnified at some times and we begin to understand how bright the sun actually is when the clouds go away and it's a, a bluebird day. We see how bright and powerful the sun is. Our marriages are meant to reflect the brightness of the sun, the brightness of the gospel. In the same way that I'm meant to understand the Father's love for me at times when I feel the, the love for my wife or the love for my kids. I'm reminded in those moments as a ray of sunlight how deeply the Father must love me, even more so the feeling that I have there in that moment. God loves me even better and, and even perhaps more, more greater than those things. This is C.S. Lewis's metaphor. Those rays are pointing upwards to the hope that exists. But what about this peculiar phrase that Jesus leaves us with, which is the heart of, of many of the conversations within the scholarly world? What about divorce? And, and is it okay to ever divorce? It's a question that I've faced for 17, 18 years of pastoral ministry. And what I've learned that in the midst of conflict and deep emotional hurt and, and toil, that every marriage and every situation and every circumstance is vastly different than the other's. No two ones are alike. But when Jesus makes this statement, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
It was with this understanding and speaking the language of Deuteronomy 24 where Moses was offering up these certificates to to those that their marriage had dissolved for a variety of circumstances. And in particular, it had dissolved because they were practicing the Levitical law in the midst of, of adultery. You were put to death. In the midst of of great hardship and infidelity, you were given a a certificate. But what is happening in this moment is Jesus is really addressing the question in the schools of thought that existed within his day. There were two groups of of Jews that, that held vastly different opinions on what it meant to make this allowance for divorce. In Deuteronomy 24, he would, uh, Moses used this word, uh, something indecent. You were therefore then permitted. In other words, in Deuteronomy 24, the word would, was displeasing or object, objectionable or disagreeable. And so the idea was that this one school of thought, Rabbi Hillel, was, was known as the, the thinker for the ultra-liberal and very progressive scholars and preachers and rabbis of his day. And he would make the argument and the claim, and I actually read some of his work this past week from some New Testament scholars, that the idea in Deuteronomy 24 that Jesus is referencing here in this moment, if you find something objectionable or disagreeable or displeasing to Rabbi Hillel, it could be anything that you possibly wanted. You didn't like how your wife looked that day and it was objectionable. Well, then you could get a certificate of divorce. She didn't smile correctly. Didn't cook dinner correctly. You didn't like her attitude or her behavior or you found her to be disrespectful, then he would make the argument and the contention that this Hebrew word in Deuteronomy 24 meant you you object and therefore you could be issued a certificate of divorce. But there was another rabbi who I'm pretty sure he was a Southern Baptist in this context. And he just simply said, as the vast majority of most Southern Baptists would have believed, that it was only in the sense of infidelity, adultery. Paul talks elsewhere in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 7. He talks about this idea of uh, within the, the, the case, and he tends to make an argument, a broader argument, that not just for infidelity, but, but rather more so for things like abandonment. Some scholars would even contend that that you would be justified in that sense, according to 1 Corinthians 7, for physical abuse, that you have forsaken the covenant that exists. We know that in Leviticus 24 that the covenant dissolved at death. It was gone, and it was over. And there are times in, in, in this life where we would understand it, that you have dissolved the covenant that you have committed to. You have forsaken that very thing. And, and so where personally, where I am alongside many other scholars, but there are also great men and women that perhaps disagree. And in the case of adultery, yes. In the case of, of abandonment, yes. And even in the case of abuse, Yes. Jesus reminds his people that though at times we perhaps break the commands, though at times we perhaps break the covenant, 
The thing that we must remember as his people is not in the, the, the school of Hillel where any little thing that we go looking for is the reason and the thing that we're looking for to get agitated and to get moved on. Divorce should always be like a physical amputation of a limb. When your foot hurts or you have a, a hangnail on your finger or your toe, you don't go cutting off your finger or your toe. You stay and you work at it and you commit to one another. When, when your elbow ails you, you don't go to the doctor and say, just, just cut it off. I've got a little pain and, and arthritis there. I need to, to remove it and to get rid of it. That's not how we are intended to treat this understanding that Jesus would give in this moment. What Jesus is doing is he is acknowledging for the very reason that Moses issued the certificate of divorce to begin with in Deuteronomy. That we live at times in a very fallen world. And sin, it, it permeates everything, even in the midst of, of our marriages. But, but just because, friend, you perhaps experience infidelity in your marriage, it doesn't mean you have to divorce. It doesn't mean you must. And I've watched God take affair after affair after affair in the life of some marriages and he redeemed it for his good and for his purposes because they stayed and because they committed and because they sought to work it out. But nowhere does it tell us that we are permitted if we uh, become unhappy. Nowhere does it tell us or advocate that we are free to get out and under any circumstances at all. We stay and we fight and we contend for one another. Marriage is is work at times. It is difficult at times. It's one of the reasons why we here offer a ministry like Reengage. Not just because we want to, to counsel couples that are in crisis, no, but we want couples that want their marriage to be enriched and to grow and to, and to deepen and to, and to strengthen. It's our contribution to that, to, to help counsel and steer and to understand the covenantal relationship that exists within marriages and that we stay and that we work and we struggle and we find friendship and companionship as we look to the gospel to inform and to shape. This morning, I, I know for a fact there are some of you that are here in this service and some that will be coming in the next service that your marriage is a struggle right now. And I want to implore you as one of your pastors here at Travis, do not quit on it. Don't stop. Don't stop fighting for it. Don't stop contending for it. Don't stop loving each other for it. Don't stop seeking to get help and, and counsel. Don't, don't stop contending it because our marriages are a reflection that ultimately point people to the gospel of Jesus. And so how we fight and contend and wrestle through conflict, those things deeply, deeply matter. And the world is watching. And so I implore you that in this time as we approach this moment in our service to partake of, of what the Bible calls the, the Lord's Supper. And as we pause for a moment to reflect and to think and to make sure that we're right, one of the ways that we do that is contending to make sure application wise that our marriages are right before the Lord. How we're wrestling with sin in our life uh, has been dealt with and, and talked about and confessed before the Lord.